All right, we are just beginning our study of 1 Timothy here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. And this really is the beginning of the body of the letter. So after the introduction and greeting that we looked at in our last recording as part of the backstory to the letter, here beginning in verse 3, we launch into uh, the body of the letter and we do so with Paul charging Timothy with the specific task that he's expecting Timothy to take care of, namely to command certain people to quit teaching false doctrine. And so that's the charge to Timothy. That's going to shape everything that's said in this letter. And that charge begins here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following. So here in this first paragraph, we actually get our first glimpse of some of what the false teaching that is affecting the church there in Ephesus entailed. So before we jump into the details of that, let me just give you an overview of the structure of the section. Since it's a fairly big chunk... Uh, but it's broken down into about four parts, and it works like this. Uh, the first few verses, verses 3 through 7, is really the direct address to Timothy himself. It's where the charge first shows up, and it addresses Timothy to deal with this problem of false teaching that derives from a misunderstanding and a misuse of the Old Testament law. From there, in verses 8 through 11, Paul then talks about the good use, the proper use of the law that's in keeping with the very gospel that Paul himself preached. And then next piece is in verses 12 through 17, where that leads to Paul reflecting on his own being trusted with the gospel and his gratitude to God for that. And then finally, in verses 18 through 20, Paul returns back to Timothy and to the charge given to him, and he really uh, culminates that charge in calling Timothy to faithfully fight the good fight. So those are the four parts, 3 through 7, 8 through 11, 12 through 17, and 18 through 20. So let's jump into the body of 1 Timothy, beginning here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And verses 3 and 4 are one sentence uh, in Greek, but they're one sentence that's missing a main verb. Paul just kind of jumps in come out of his introduction and greeting to Timothy, and he forgets the main verb in the sentence. And so translators supply that in various ways. I'm working out of the New American Standard translation. And so they supply that at the very end of the sentence, at the end of verse 4, by saying, so I urge you now. And so that's their way of supplying really the kind of the second half of the sentence, the main verb that the sentence is getting at. It's clear what Paul is saying. They just have to supply that in order for good English grammar in our language. So Paul jumps in in verse 3 and says, Just as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, if you break that off there, just as I urged you, there needs to be a second half to that sentence, so I urge you now. And that's why uh, the New American Standard has added that. They've just added it at the end of verse 4. So just as I urged you or uh, called you or exhorted you upon my departure for Macedonia. So uh, it sounds like Paul was with Timothy in Ephesus, left Ephesus, heading into Macedonia, which is to the west across the Aegean Sea. And we talked about that in the backstory. So just as I urged you when I left for Macedonia, here's what he urged. To remain on at Ephesus so that 
you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines. So this is what Paul urged Timothy then. This is what Paul is urging Timothy now, here through this letter, that Timothy would stay there in Ephesus, and he would continue to work hard with the church. And apparently there are some people that have infiltrated the church, or maybe better, it sounds like they in some way were a part of the church, and now they're teaching false things within the church. And Timothy is being called to make sure that, that they cease and desist. They don't teach strange doctrines. The word uh, there in verse 3 that says that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrine. That word instruct literally is charge or command, that you would charge certain people not to teach strange doctrines, or that you would command certain people not to do that. That's the idea of that word. The reason that's important is Paul's going to use that word a couple more times in this paragraph, and it gets translated differently, and so we lose the linguistic and verbal connection if we don't recognize that it's the exact same word. So, so that you would charge or command certain people not to teach strange doctrines. And that word strange literally just means different. It's heteros, as in heterodoxy or heterosexual. Uh, different, right? That's what this word means. And so the phrase simply says, uh, command certain people not to teach different teachings, different doctrines or different things. Different teachings is the idea. And then Paul amplifies that in verse 4 by saying, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Apparently these were part of the strange doctrines, the different teachings um, that were being passed on in various groups and to various people within the church there in Ephesus. And it involved myths and uh, endless genealogies. And so some sort of teaching about genealogies that seems to derive from the Old Testament laws, we'll see shortly. And Paul says, these myths and endless genealogies give rise to useless speculation rather than advance the plan of God, which is by faith. And so, as I urged you then, I urge you now. And that's how the sentence ends. This idea of useless speculation rather than advancing the plan of God. Um, that word plan, oikonomia in Greek, is uh, a plan for administering something, a management plan. It, it was typically used in like an, uh, an ancient household or an estate where the head of the household had uh, various things that needed to get done around the household. They had crops that needed to be taken care of. They had uh, workers that needed to be managed. They had servants that needed to be managed. Right there, there's a whole estate to be managed, and they would have a way of doing that, a plan uh, of administering the whole estate. That's what this word captures here. And so this refers to God's plan or purposes for his household. And so these genealogies and myths, which give rise to useless speculations, they don't actually further God's purposes for his people, for his family, and for his household. And so Timothy needs to urge them to stop doing this, to stop passing on these useless speculations and these strange different kinds of teachings. And what's the ultimate objective or ultimate aim of God's purposes, God's plans for his family? Well, Paul answers that in verse 5. And so when he says, these aren't advancing God's plans, here is 
where God's plan is going. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction, that word instruction is the same word that means charge or command up above. And so here it is translated similarly, instruct there in verse 3, uh, instruction here, but it means charge or command. So the goal of our instruction or the goal of our charge, our commandment is this. Um, it is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal. That's the aim of God's purposes, of which these different teachings and useless speculations are undermining that rather than furthering that. And so God gave Paul and Timothy and us today a charge of faithfulness to the truth, faithfulness to God's teaching, and the end goal of that teaching and that charge is love. Love for God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love for our neighbor as ourself, right? That's what Jesus said. The two greatest commandments are love for God and love for neighbor. And here Paul notes in verse 5 that this love comes from three things. It comes from, flows from a pure heart, a heart that's been washed and clean is the idea. Pure means clean, a clean heart. Uh, it flows from a good conscience. That is, it's not a seared conscience. Paul uses that phrase in this letter later, and he uses it in other places. A seared conscience is one that has been, like, cal it's callous. It's been cauterized, and therefore it's hard and doesn't listen to God. But a good conscience is soft towards God and, and honest with God's word. And so this love flows from a clean heart, a good conscience, and a genuine, sincere faith. But those who teach these strange doctrines, well, they've strayed from such love and such a pure heart and such a good conscience and such a genuine faith. And so Paul says to them in verse 6, some people, that is, those who are teaching false things, they've strayed from these things. Notice that phrase, these people have strayed which suggests that at some point they were part of the church, they were learning the truth, they were learning sound teaching, but now they have left that path. They've strayed from it. And that's why I think maybe the people that are teaching false teachings have been part of the church there in Ephesus, and now they've gotten caught up in some weird ideas, some different sorts of ideas, and, and now they're spreading that in whatever way they can in the church in Ephesus. So they've strayed from these things, and, and they've turned aside, so they've left the truth, they've left uh, the sincere faith, they've turned aside to fruitless discussion, to discussions that really bear no fruit. They bring nothing good that is God-pleasing or God-honoring from all these discussions. And then Paul continues to describe them in verse 7. He says uh, that they want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And so Paul is charging Timothy to address these very people, to call them to account, and to get them to cease and desist their, their teaching. And what he notes here is that these people, uh, they like to put themselves forward as like teachers of the law, experts in the law, and the law refers to the Old Testament law, the Hebrew scriptures, but they don't even understand what they're talking about. They don't understand the things about which they make confident assertions, and yet people are still listening to them, and it's still stirring up trouble. And, and Paul is urging Timothy to call them out and to get them to stop. 
Now, whatever those false teachers are saying about the Old Testament law, Paul wants to make sure to clarify for Timothy and for us that the law itself isn't the problem. It's the misuse of the law that's the problem, the misunderstanding and the misapplication of the law that is the problem. And so Paul immediately follows up in verse 8 by saying, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. This is Paul's consistent teaching about the Old Testament law. The law is not bad. And sometimes in the church today, we make the mistake of saying, oh, the Old Testament law was just a bunch of rituals and, and commands that no one could keep. Anyhow, we denigrate, we run down the Old Testament law. But Paul didn't believe that. Paul believed, as he states here, that the law is good. Romans chapter 7, where he really does address the problem of the law in detail, he still asserts, even in that context in Romans 7, that the law is holy and righteous and good. So the law is not bad, the law is good, if one uses it correctly, one uses it lawfully. If one understands and applies the Old Testament law properly, then the law is good and beneficial. Well, how, how should we use it? Paul doesn't really explain that here. He's going to go on and describe maybe one particular purpose of the law in verses 9 and following. Uh, but we can look at the rest of Paul's teaching and we can get a much more complete picture of how the law is meant to be used, what its proper purposes are. In fact, if you look at all of the New Testament, you'll see that the law really had several purposes. One of it was to reveal our sinfulness. Another was to instruct us in the ways of God. And that it, it had that goal. It also, Paul says in Corinthians, was to provide warnings and examples for us for faithful living. Uh, the law also was supposed to lead people to faith in Jesus, the Messiah, that it, it had as its culmination point, leading people to Jesus, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Well, here... In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's going to highlight another important aspect of the law that must have connected to the misuse of the law by the false teachers there in Ephesus that Timothy was having to address. And so here Paul says in verse 9, realizing this, so that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. In fact, that's the purpose of not just the Old Testament law, but all law. It was given because humans were broken and sinful. And so the law, one of its purposes was to curb human wickedness. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, that we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith which was to be uh, uh, revealed at a later time. And so the law had this purpose of sort of putting boundaries on and putting parameters on and enunciating what was right and wrong, very clearly articulating that, um, and very clearly articulating consequences for doing wrong. That's what the law did. And so Paul uses the imagery in Galatians 3 of being kept in custody under that. Then he follows that up with, it was sort of like a tutor, a pedagogue in the ancient world that was sort of like a super nanny that was just supposed to keep people in check and, and, and help them do what they're supposed to do until the faith should come, until Christ should come, Paul says in Galatians 3. And so the law articulated very clearly what was wrong 
and what the consequences were for doing wrong. And so one of its purposes was aimed at trying to keep lawless people from being lawless. That's what the law did. At least that's one of its purposes. And so Paul then says that the law was for lawless people and for rebellious people. Paul then continues listing off who the law is for. So it's for the lawless and rebellious. Then he says, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the worldly. These are just broad general categories of people. Like This is what the law was supposed to address. Lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and worldly kind of people to help them learn the right way they were supposed to go. And then, as Paul continues this list of who the law is for in verse 10, the list actually begins to follow some of the Ten Commandments, which is perfectly appropriate since he's talking about the law and who it's for. And so notice, he says, after for the unholy and the worldly, he says, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Right? The law specified, honor your father and mother. And then the next chapter in Exodus chapter 21, it says anyone who strikes his father or mother, well, this is what needs to happen to them. The law is for those kinds of people. It's for murderers. Now, the next commandment, commandment number six, thou shalt not murder. It's for the sexually immoral and homosexuals. Um, thou shalt not commit adultery, where the law specifies there is a way for sexuality to be used properly. The law addresses that, gives all sorts of examples of how to apply that in the chapters that follow there in the Ten Commandments. And so what we see here is how Paul takes the basic command, thou shalt not commit adultery, and he applies it to other forms of sexual unfaithfulness to God. And so he says sexual immorality, which is just a broad word for any kind of sexual sin. There's lots of ways for people to sin sexually. Sexual immorality, that word here, just describes a big category of that. Then he mentions homosexuals. Literally, this word homosexual means a male who has sex with a male. That's what that word refers to, but it became the general word for homosexual activity, same-sex activity. Uh, whether between males or females, as Paul dis discusses in Romans chapter 1. And so the laws for people like that, who misuse their sexuality. Then he says the laws for slave traders, um, which appears to be a specific application of thou shalt not steal, perhaps, right? The, the word slave trader literally is a man-stealer. Um, and that's why sometimes it's translated kidnappers, and sometimes it's translated slave traders. It refers to kidnapping specifically for the purpose of slave trading. Uh, that kind of thing happened in the Old Testament. It happened in Paul's day. It still happens today. And so the law is for people like that. Um, the law, he says, is for liars and perjurers. And remember, the Ten Commandments specified, thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. And so the law is for people like that. And then Paul just ends this list with a broad sweeping category and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law is for keeping people from doing these kinds of things and anything else like them. And Paul refers to that as sound teaching. And that phrase, sound teaching, is going to be really important to 1 Timothy and even 2 Timothy and Titus that we'll get to down the road, these pastoral epistles. And literally, sound is the word healthy. It's healthy teaching. 
Sometimes this is translated sound doctrine, but it's healthy teaching, healthy doctrine. That is, it's instruction that's good for human well-being and good for human flourishing. It's healthy for us. It's good for us. Um, and these kinds of things aren't good for human flourishing that he's just listed off. And since this is the, the kind of the initial use of this phrase in this letter here in this paragraph, looking at it in context here is helpful for us to see what Paul has in mind by sound or healthy doctrine or sound or healthy teaching. It doesn't entail just true beliefs, doctrine for doctrine's sake, but it also refers to healthy practice, true practice, things that are good for human living. So sound teaching entails not only right ideas, but right practice, right living. And that's why it's healthy. That's why it's good for us, because it shows us how we're designed to function and thus how we can flourish as human beings. Paul then goes on to say in verse 11 that such sound teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so this sound teaching um, that the law is in sync with is also in sync with the gospel. Uh, the gospel that, that Paul was entrusted with. Notice how that gospel is described here. It's described as the glorious gospel, literally the gospel of glory. And then the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And so really what the gospel is about, the only reason the gospel has glory is because it's about the glory of God who is blessed forever. That's the idea of the phrase. And so the content of the gospel focuses on God himself. It's the gospel that God announced and God achieved and God brought about. It's his gospel. And Paul's been entrusted with it. One of the functions of this letter of 1 Timothy is not merely to instruct Timothy on what to do, but by instructing him, it's to authorize him to act in Paul's place in Ephesus. Paul has left and headed into Macedonia. He's left Timothy there. And so by virtue of sending Timothy this letter and then having this letter read out loud to the whole church, it will, it will really credential and authorize Timothy to act in Paul's stead there in Ephesus. And since Paul was entrusted with the gospel, and the gospel is the source and measure of sound teaching, then what Paul and Timothy along with him, acting in his place, what they teach is the measure of sound teaching, and that's what people need to, to know. They need to know that Paul's gospel and Timothy's gospel, that is the measure of sound teaching. And so these false teachers, if they're going a different direction and they're teaching something differently, then they're out of sync with Paul and with Timothy and with the gospel of the blessed God and the glory of the blessed God. Now, at this point in the paragraph, Paul, after noting that he had been entrusted with the gospel, that leads Paul to really reflect on that fact that God would give him this sacred trust. But we're going to break here and we'll pick it up in part two of this paragraph in the next recording just for the sake of time. And we'll walk down through Paul's personal reflections on God entrusting him with the gospel and what that meant to the Apostle Paul and how he viewed himself because of it. 
All right, thanks for tuning in to part one of the listener's commentary on 1 Timothy chapter one. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible and able to give away for free because of the generosity of all sorts of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. If you want to join the team of supporters, you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com and you can do it one of two ways. You can, the easiest way is just to click the give button. It'll take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount, click a little box that says make this monthly or just do a one-time donation and you can set up a monthly donation there through World Family Mission. Or you can sign up for the study hub and uh, give the amount you want to give and it'll give you access to the resources in the study hub. Either way, monthly donations given through the Study Hub or through World Family Mission, both cases give you access to all those bonus resources in the Study Hub. So thanks a ton for making this ministry possible. Thanks a ton for your support.